Almighty God and Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Our Gospel lesson for this morning, the setting here is um, Jesus has just finished calling his twelve disciples to be apostles, to be sent ones. He went up on a mountain to pray, and he called the twelve to him and designated them as apostles, those who are sent. And so we pick it up in verse 17, and he came down with them, this is down the mountain, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from Judea, Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. It may well be a mixed crowd, not only uh, Jewish hearers, but Gentile hearers as well, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him. This is important. They sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And this is the prophetic pattern you notice in the Old Testament. The prophets uh, preached the word, and by the power of God, they also performed miracles. Jesus is a prophet in that tradition, and yet much more than a prophet. And notice, they want to touch him, because the gospel is all about the enfleshment of God. Our salvation is tied up in God becoming man. And that's Roman numeral one. Jesus is present and touchable in our gospel. His flesh is real. He's truly human. But his flesh also has power to impart life. It has power to impart life. Because the attributes of his divinity are communicated to his humanity. To touch him is to touch God. He is 100% human, and he's 100% divine. Not half and half, but fully human, fully divine. And if God does not become man, there is no salvation for mankind. He was put to death for our sins in the flesh, and raised up in the flesh for our justification, according to St. Paul in Romans chapter 4. So they, take, they seek to touch this one, this Holy One, who communicates divine gifts through his flesh. And then he speaks to them. Verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples. This reminds me of the way Matthew puts it, uh, he opens his mouth and begins to speak. This is a kind of a momentous event here. And when Jesus lifts up his eyes on you, you're blessed. You're graced. He lifted up his eyes, notice this, not on just everyone at this moment, but on his disciples. The words that follow are for them. And he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You're poor now, but the kingdom, everything that belongs to God, is yours as well. 
Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied in the future. It's coming. Fullness awaits. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall, again, future, you shall rejoice, you shall laugh. And blessed are you now when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they ostracize you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. It's because of our connection to Jesus that the world finds us odious, less than desirable. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. In other words, you are in good company when you find yourself ostracized for the name of Christ. You're in good company. Be happy. So, Roman numeral two, who are the poor, the hungry, the weeping? They are the disciples. They are the ones who are blessed. And why are they poor and hungry and weeping? Because, letter A, they've left everything. We just read last week in our gospel lesson, after Jesus performs this miracle of the great catch of fish, the disciples pull their boats up on the shore, they leave their nets, and they follow him. So they have left family behind, at least temporarily. And, and family was your social safety net. Family was your social security. You turn your back on family, and you turn your back on your guaranteed income. They also left their work behind. No income from that. So they are poor. And let her be the poor, that, that Greek word patokoi refers to beggars. And that is the most extreme form of poverty. You know, there's different levels of poverty. There's episodic poverty, you know, there's a temporary setback, maybe your house burns down. You've got a cancer diagnosis, it exhausts your resources, but, but you recover. And then there's another kind of poverty where you're able to just to barely tread water and keep your, keep your head above water, but every month it's a struggle. And as Dave Ramsey would say, you're living on beans and rice and rice and beans. But you're making it. Barely. You're making it. That's poverty too. But then there's the most extreme form of poverty. And, and that's where you leave your job. That's where you leave your family and you travel. And that's what these disciples are going to be doing. They're going to be traveling. And they are going to be dependent upon the generosity of strangers. See, there's no one more impoverished than that. To leave everything behind and to be dependent on people you haven't yet met. It's a bit scary. So, point B1, it's a shameful condition of dependency and helplessness, which Jesus has called them into. Jesus has put them into this position. And it is the most extreme form of poverty. I cite Luke 9.3. That's where Jesus sends his disciples out on a mission. And he says, don't take a staff. Don't take money. Don't take food. 
Don't take an extra change of clothing. The labor is worthy of his hire. You'll be provided for. That's extreme poverty. And so he speaks comfort to these people who are and who will suffer extreme poverty. He speaks comfort to them because he has placed them in a disadvantaged condition. And he says, in effect, take heart. Because even though you have nothing, you truly, really have everything. Everything that belongs to God is yours. And someday you'll see it. So this teaches, point 2a, it teaches dependence on God for sure. And they will see that God is true to his promise. That Jesus doesn't lie. And it's an effective evangelism strategy. Now, that's my idea. And I, I couldn't help but to think of um, the Ben Franklin effect. I don't know if you've heard of that. Um, but Ben, ben Franklin was well, a pretty wise uh, fellow. And uh, he was in a situation where uh, I think he was a delegate to the Pennsylvania House of Representatives or something like that back in the colonial era. And... There was another man in the representative's house that really despised Franklin. And Franklin asked himself, what can I do about this? And so he thought, I'll ask a favor of him. I won't give him something, but I'll ask a favor of him. And he sent a note to the man, and the note read like this. I hear that you have a certain book, a rare book that I have need of. It would really help me in something that I'm working on now. I wondered if you'd be so kind as to lend me that book. The man was surprised and shocked to receive the note from Franklin, of all people, but he thought, okay, I'll lend it. And he did. And Franklin wrote that the two men became fast friends thereafter. And psychologists explain this in a certain way. It's called cognitive dissonance. It's when you, you despise somebody, but when they are needy, when they have a need of something that you can provide, and they ask you for it, in the act of giving, it sets up a conflict in your head. Because it's hard to despise somebody whom you are helping. It's hard to despise somebody to whom you are being kind. That's dissonance, you see. And so the mind wants to eliminate the conflict, and the mind begins to think highly of the individual that it once despised. That's the Ben Franklin effect. And, and as these disciples go around, in a very humble condition, they are despised, but as they ask for help, they'll find an open door. Maybe not always. But on certain occasions, they will. The Lord will provide and bring enemies together. So, Roman numeral three, who are the rich? Who are the full? Who are the laughing? They are those who refuse to repent and follow Christ. They refuse to hear his word. They refuse the baptism of John. They refuse the ministry of Jesus. They love this world and their position in it more than the world that is to come. They love the approval of men 
more than the approval of God himself. And they care more about political correctness than they care about the word of the Lord. Now God, Roman numeral 4, God is exceedingly fair and merciful to all people because of Christ. And I couldn't help, I cite Luke 16, I, I couldn't help but to think of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. And I think you know the story. Um, this poor beggar was laid at the doorstep of a wealthy man who dined and, and feasted every day. And, and the poor beggar, Lazarus, longed to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, but he didn't receive a thing. And eventually Lazarus died, and, and we read uh, that he was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. That's another way of saying heaven. The rich man also died, and he was buried. And we're not even told his name, but he's buried. And being in hell, being in torment, he looks up to heaven, and he sees Lazarus in the arms of Father Abraham. And the rich man complains about his condition. And this is what Abraham says. He says, son... He calls him child. Remember, in your life, you received good things and Lazarus evil things. But now, but now Lazarus is comforted and you are in torment. You see, the Lord himself balances out his gifts. He's good to all. But the question is this. Are your good things enjoyed now, or will they be enjoyed later? That's the question in that parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and that's the question here in the blessings and the woes that Jesus speaks to us today. The Lord balances out. This is what eternity is all about. You know, not, not every just decision is rendered in this life, and if it's not, it will be rendered in the life to come. So letter A, the Beatitudes are comforting promises to all who suffer because of their connection to Christ. They are comforting promises. Comfort right now. You may not see what's promised, but you hear the word of the Lord and you trust it. You hold on to it in the midst of the hardship. And letter B, the woes are alarming promises to all who love this present world more than Christ and his kingdom. They are alarming promises, disturbing promises. They're unsettling to hear. I remember um, years ago when my, my mother passed away when I was uh, a young man. And... Um, there was a few acres of land that went to her, and they were to come to me. And my uncle said to me, he says, well, he says, this is the last of it. He said, you'll get this, and that's all you're going to get. There will be no more. I remember hearing that, and I was glad for a few acres of land, but to hear that this is the last you'll get. There will be no more. Was very unsettling. There's a finality about that. 
Now I want you to think about what you have right now, what the, what the Lord has given to you, because we know everything we possess in this world is gift. It's due to the grace of God. We didn't earn it. You know, give us this day our daily bread. Even the labor that he gives you daily bread through is a gift. It's all gift from God. But what if God said, that's all you're going to have? There's nothing more coming for you. You won't get any more. There is a finality about that. It is unsettling to hear. It's alarming. I should think. And that brings us to Roman number five. Jesus is present and he's touchable for you today. He calls us to confess our own dependency and helplessness. And I cite John 15, 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That is our condition. For all who have ears to hear the word of the Lord, we see through the lies of this world, which says you're self-sufficient. You can provide for yourself. You can stand on your own two feet. The word of God tells us different. We cannot do those things. We are completely dependent upon the Lord. Martin Luther wrote, these were his last words. He couldn't speak on his deathbed. He wrote on a piece of paper. He's always proclaiming, even on his deathbed, we are beggars, this is true. It is our condition before God. Sometimes it may be visibly evident, other times it is hidden, but it is spiritually the reality for us. And let her be, his beatitudes attract us into the kingdom of God by removing the stigma of dependency or the shame of dependency, and giving dignity to helplessness. He gives dignity to helplessness. You see, we may be helpless, but it's because we're His. It's because we have Him as our provider. We have Him as our Redeemer. Jesus called His disciples little children. John the Apostle, when he writes to Christians, he refers to us as little children. When Jesus was teaching his disciples, he would take a little child and stand the little child in their midst and say, this is what you are. This is what you should be. That's our identity. Why? Because the little child is helpless. The little child is dependent, you see. The little child's a little beggar. John the Baptist said, a man can receive nothing unless it's given to him from above. He's the source. He's the provider. We receive. That's our place, you see. So he removes the, the, the shame of dependency and gives dignity to helplessness because we may be helpless, but it means that we belong to him. It means we have him as our provider, our redeemer, our protector, our shield. And let her see, we share in the flesh 
We share in the flesh of the same Jesus who imparts his life to us. Take, eat, this is my body given for you. And St. Paul affirms that literal truth in his letter to the Corinthians. The cup of blessing which we bless, is, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? These things are in communion with the earthly elements. These spiritual realities are present, and we touch him in this humble meal. And this is why Jesus said in John 6, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The people in our gospel reading for this morning They touch the Lord and they're temporarily healed, but they still become ill and they still die. We touch the Lord and we're healed forever. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. We have eternal healing and eternal salvation through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Yeah, the world hears what we proclaim, that we're beggarly that we are dependent, that we are helpless. And the world thinks, that's not for me. But those of us who have ears to hear know a deeper truth, that children are the ones who are dependent. Children are the ones who are helpless. Children are the ones who are beggarly. And we are his children. And there's no higher calling. There's no higher station in this world than that. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.